educational system is that of testing. You know, that's the thing you really love about education is to be tested periodically. The design of a test is not to expose your failure or to reveal what you don't know. When you enter the classroom, you have a zero test score. You're a failure in the sense you don't know the course. You don't know the subject. That's why you're there. The point of a test is to expose or discover your progress, what you're learning, what you know. Well, Paul, in this last chapter, 2 Corinthians 13, is going to use some form of a single Greek word six times and then an additional Greek word that all relate to the word testing. Testing. He would say, you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. Proof. It's to test. He would say, examine yourselves. Another Greek word for testing or trying. He would say, prove your own selves. He would use the word reprobate, which means to fail the test. And he will use the word approved, which is a form of the same Greek word, which means to pass the test. So in any testing, you've got the test, you have the answer key, and you have a pass or fail grade. So I direct your attention to verse 5 as the centerpiece of our message this morning, where Paul says, examine yourselves. My title is Test Yourselves. Test your Selves. As Paul closes out this letter, he's not the kind of teacher that maybe you've had where it seems as if their whole goal is for you to fail. You ever had a teacher like that? It seems like the whole point, what they're really after, is to show how bad you are, how much you don't know, and to give you a failing score. That's not Paul's point here. And it's not the point of testing ourselves. Paul is somewhat optimistic. You can see it in the words of the chapter. But nevertheless, he calls on the church to test herself. We could do that individually. We could do that as a church. So I want us this morning to test ourselves. Now, we're not going to look all over the Bible and find ways and what it means to, to prove ourselves. But just in this context, we'll look at three things that Paul is pointing the church to in this test. First, it's a test of power. Second, it's the test of presence. And then thirdly, it's a test of perfection. Paul uses that word twice. I wish for your perfection. Be perfect, which doesn't mean perfection like we think of it. It means mature. It means to restore, to repair, to adjust. It means to be what you ought to be. So we're taking a test this morning to ask ourselves, am I what I ought to be in relation to my own faith in Christ? But which cannot be denied in relation to what we are as a church together unto Christ. Test yourselves. We're just going to look at these verses beginning in verse 1, and we'll look at a test of power. Paul would say in verse 1, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. He's already made reference in the previous chapter He's coming a third time. The second visit was a very painful visit. You remember they criticized him for saying he would come pass by again, and he didn't because he wanted to spare them, he would say in chapter 1. Now he's going to make his third and final visit. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Paul is drawing from Deuteronomy 19.15. 
where the law provided a protection for a man accused of a sin or iniquity only in the mouth of two witnesses or the mouth of three witnesses shall every matter be established. Someone could not falsely accuse someone because they were out to get them. They needed witnesses. In Matthew 18, Jesus Christ Himself says in church conflict between individuals, If a brother offends you, go to such an one and tell him his fault between him and thee alone. And if he shall hear you, you've gained your brother. But if not, take with thee one or two so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So that's the course before you bring it to the church. The two or three witnesses will judge who is correct, who's following the Scripture in the matter. And then we saw in 1 Timothy 5.19, Receive not an accusation against an elder, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others may fear. So Paul is coming a third time. And who are his witnesses? It could be the people at Corinth, those that repented. They're still a group that are rejecting Paul's ministry, which he's referring to. But Paul could be saying, I was there the second time and I witnessed it myself and I'm coming a third time for a third witness. And if it's true, what does Paul say? Verse 2, I told you this before. I foretell you now... As if I were present the second time when I did tell you, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and you'll find that in verses 20 and 21 of the previous chapter where he highlights the sins that are still happening at Corinth, those that have sinned and they keep sinning, and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. So the two or three witnesses, whether it's those at Corinth or Paul himself, If the witness is true on the third visit, he will not spare. As we pointed out before, Paul is likely saying he will not spare, as he told the church not to spare in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says to deliver such an one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he himself in 1 Timothy 1, he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that they would learn not to blaspheme. Now, what does it mean to be delivered over to the destruction of the flesh outside of the protection of the church? It would seem to me the very thing that's being implied, to destroy the flesh in some way. And how does Satan do that? Maybe through sickness. Maybe through weakness. Maybe through death. Maybe through fire coming out of the sky. Maybe through influence, Chaldeans and Sabians to kill and murder and steal, like he did in Job's case. Now, Job's case was not a case of sin, but we're just pointing out the devil had some power because he was attributed as a secondary cause for doing those things. So whatever it will mean when God, through Paul, exercises his apostolic authority to not spare them, which doesn't mean Paul is going to hurt them, He's going to use his apostolic authority to deliver them over to the destruction of the flesh so that if it's true, they'll be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be a restoration. He desires their perfection, their mending, their restoration, that they should be what they ought to be. Since, this is the reason, verse 3, since you seek a proof, a test of Christ speaking in me. Now here's the test of power. 
which Paul says, which to you were, that is Christ in him to you were, is not weak, but is mighty or powerful among you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. The church at Corinth's thinking was so distorted that they were criticizing Paul because he had no power. He was too weak in his speech and his bodily presence. And they could not see that Christ-like gentleness, meekness, and lowliness was the power or the channel by which Christ was speaking through Paul. So Paul says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me that's not weak, but powerful, Paul says, when I come, he will use his power for judgment. And that's the point of verse 4. For though he, Christ, was crucified through weakness, that is his humanity and frailty in the cross, yet he liveth by the power of God, he lives by resurrection power now. For we also are weak in him, but we shall, in the future, we shall live with him by the power of God toward you, church of Corinth. How? When Paul comes the third time, he will exercise apostolic authority and power, since they seek a proof of this, And they will find Paul, verse 20 and 21 of the last chapter, as they would not wish to find him. And Paul doesn't want to find them as he wished that he would not find them, which is what? Still quarreling, debating, jealousy, strife, and sexual immorality. So Paul is using irony here. Since you're seeking a proof that Christ is speaking in me, a powerful display, it's going to come. And I'm not going to spare. See, Paul is trying to awaken them to their distorted thinking of what displays of power really is. Now let's take that test in a contemporary sense for us today. That's the contextual way Paul uses it concerning the church at Corinth. But what do you think is a proof of power in a church today? Or Christ speaking through a church or through a ministry? If you listen very close to Christians today about what they call a powerful worship service, very seldom have I heard it be an expression of confession, repentance, weakness, humility, and lowliness. It's always something grand, showy, and a powerful display of some way. I think... Most of us today would overlook the Apostle Paul's ministry because there was no showy display of power. Not even a little bit. And he was that way on purpose. What do we think is a proof of Christ speaking through us? It went right over their heads through his suffering and his weakness. And Paul said, Jesus saying to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. Do we seek showy displays of power? Or would we receive the Apostle Paul's ministry, weak, 
suffering. You see, the Corinthian church, as we have understood this letter to say in the first letter, was looking at Paul's ministry through a triumphalist lens of health. Paul was not a healthy man, beloved. He had been beaten so bad, he was not in good health, in a sense. They were looking through the lens of wealth. Paul supported himself at Corinth. How bad is that? If you're these intruders trying to make a case and demanding payment from the church, because that's what they were after, filthy lucre. Paul has no wealth. He comes into the church there in Corinth as a matter and a sake for the gospel. This was his policy in a new, new area when he founded a church. He supports himself. They criticize him for that. Why? Because they're looking through a lens of triumphalism. And showy displays of power. Paul, there's nothing really showy grandeur about your speech, your presence, or anything about you. What do we seek as a proof of, of Christ speaking through a man or, or through a church? This is our first test. test. You remember Paul said, we'll look at a couple of places, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency or surpassing value of the power, powerful, you want to see something powerful? Would be of God and not of us. How is Paul going to go into Corinth? How is a church going to display the power of God in a way that everybody says that's of God? Through earthen, clay, broken vessels. Now here's the problem as a church. We want to paint the vessel gold. We want to smear epoxy in the cracks and hide them and then decorate it real nice so that it looks good. Paul Washer talks about prostituting the church of God. Contemporary Christianity prostitutes the church. They dye the hair of the bride of Christ and put on a different kind of clothing. One that appeals to the culture of today. I mean, who wants to look at a clay pot? It's just broken. You know, get some stylish hair, change it. Let, let's change the makeup and the dress of the church. I'm not talking about physical dress, you understand. This is a metaphor. He says we're prostituting the church, the bride of Christ. It's His bride. And why? To make the gospel palatable to people who it's not palatable to. So beloved, let the clay pot be a clay pot. Let the church be a broken clay pot and let God be God so that the treasure that fills the cracks, that, that everyone sees the light shining through, the, the, the cracked brokenness of sinners will be the surpassing value of Jesus and not of Paul or not the people in the church. See? It's through weakness that the power is made known. Paul would say in the first chapter, in the first letter, when he started addressing the problems at Corinth, he would say, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. As it is written, He will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, where is God going to do that? Where is God going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and just bring the understanding of prudent people to zero, nothing? 
And then he asked the rhetorical question, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Of course, he's going to do that in the church. He is going to put away human wisdom in the church by, by bringing together people who are not powerful at all. In fact, they're pretty pathetically weak, right? Hath not God, has he not destroyed the wisdom of the wise in the church? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. How is he going to do that? The foolishness of preaching. Not the, not the glory of preaching and, and the dynamic uh, uh, ways of the preacher. Just foolishness of preaching the cross. See, God is destroying the wisdom of the wise. wise. Now, now, why is He going to do that? Because the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after foolishness. But we preach Christ and Him crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, foolishness. But under them which are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews require a sign of power. The health, wealth, and prosperity power, because that's the Messiah they were looking for. And how does God destroy that? How does He make the gospel a stumbling block? He brings a weak, poor Savior. And they just trip all over Him. They will not have it. They're looking through a lens of triumphalism. We want to see power. God brought power through weakness. He's destroying the wisdom of the wise through you and your weakness. Why would we then try to look powerful? Why would we smear epoxy over the cracks? Why would we paint the picture gold? Just let it be clay, beloved. Let God be God. Why is the preaching of the cross foolishness to those that are not saved? The Greeks? Because they seek the power of human wisdom. The power of intellect. You don't get in the church that way. You don't even get saved that way. The world doesn't know God by wisdom or by willing it. You know Him by grace. You see your calling, brethren. There are not many wise people here. There are not many mighty people here. There's not many noble people here. Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why then are we trying to unconfound people by being so wise and being so powerful? Let the gospel confound. Let it be a stumbling block. Let it be foolishness. Because it requires God to call people for it to be otherwise. Let the gospel be the gospel and let the church be weak. This is a test of power. They had rejected the real power of Paul through weakness. And now Paul says, since you seek a proof, it's not the proof I want to give, but I'm going to come with power and I won't spare. Beloved, let us as a church remember that we're not attracting people to the treasure of the gospel by being powerful and removing the stumbling block and trying to make it not so foolish to people. Let it be foolish. Let it be a stumbling block. Let them see the power of the gospel through foolish preaching and foolish people like ourselves. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, If any man will be wise, let him what? 
Be a fool. Church, be a fool so that you may be really wise. Now that's the first test. And if we're going to pass the test, we've got to remember we can't cater to the wisdom and the power of the world. We just have to be fools for Christ. We just need to be weak and Christ be strong. And we're passing the test. Second test is the test of presence. And of course, we're talking about Christ's presence. Verse 5. Examine or test yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not that your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you. Presence. Except you be reprobates. But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. Now here's a test. Test yourselves. With every test, there's questions on a test. There's three forms of this question. Are we in the faith, church? Is Christ in His church? Or are we reprobates? Do we fail the test? But it's really just one test, isn't it? Is Christ in you? Is He present? Is He among you? That's a, that's a good question to ask. Now remember, Paul's aim here, he's very optimistic. He's not trying to expose them that they're reprobates. He's trying to move them to the assurance of passing the test. That's what he wants. Everything he's been writing is, he's been praying for their mending, their restoration, that they would be what they ought to be, perfection. All right. What's the standard to judge this question? I mean, that's a pretty subjective question, right? It's subject to delusion and abuse, right? Are you in Christ? It's like the question you asked somebody, do you think you're going to heaven? 99.9% of those surveys say what? Of course! I mean, I'm not like that guy, and I've done some pretty good things. So the expectation that everybody, even the one sinning, with the list that Paul gave us, is going to answer in the affirmative. Yes, we're in Christ. But the answer to the question is not yes. Paul and his wisdom through the Holy Spirit here is remarkable. See, when Paul grades the test, all of them is going to answer, yes, we're in Christ. The answer is not yes. The answer is Paul. Verse 6, But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. A documos, rejected, unapproved. What is Paul doing? Notice he uses some form of the word yourselves three times. It's, it's an overload. Examine yourselves. Prove your own selves. Know you're not your own selves. Because they haven't been doing a self-examination. They've been doing a cross-examination of Paul's ministry. Paul is on the witness stand, and like a cross-examination, they're trying to tear down his testimony that he's a genuine apostle. I mean, the whole letter has been undergirded by that fact. So Paul says, you're going to reject my testimony and say that I am a dokimos, I'm unapproved as an apostle, guess what? You're a reprobate then too. What do you mean, Paul? What was their existential union with Christ? Which means, how did they experience union with Christ? If they're going to say, yes, Christ is in me, that means Christ is united to them. What was their experience of being united with Christ? It was Paul's ministry. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. What was their experience of being a new creature? It was the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit through Paul to the church at Corinth. 
They reject Paul and say, Paul, you're a dokimos. Guess what, church? You are a dokimos. You are rejected. You are a reprobate. Isn't that remarkable? Because Paul had the inspired word of God. Reject Paul and judgment is coming eternally on them. What's Paul doing? He's gently pushing them into a corner so that they would come to the place to do what Paul is after the whole time, a restoration to his ministry, which is a restoration to Christ. Now that's the context and the answer. As Paul says, I trust you know that we're not reprobates, which means then you'll know that you're not a reprobate or that Christ is indeed truly in you. Let's apply that to ourselves. How would we ask that question for ourselves? Of course, Paul is not here, but we could certainly go by Paul's gospel, right? Reject Paul's gospel. We are reprobates. We are rejected of God. Receive Paul's gospel. We know that Christ is in us. So let's look at three things. We'll relate it to this second letter that we can assess. Nothing complex, but just... Three simple words to assess based on the fact that Paul says, whether you be in the faith, which is synonymous with Christ in you. So the first thing is believing Christ. To be in the faith means to trust Christ, means to know that Christ is in you. So for the church at Corinth, to believe Christ is to believe Paul's Christ, right? That's why Paul attaches it to himself. What do they know about Christ? Whatever Paul said. He was God's apostle. What about us? Are you believing present tense in Christ? Now Paul makes it clear as we saw in the last chapter, Paul is not an apostle of cheap grace as it's referred to, easy believism, or a forgiveness that's destitute of repentance. It does not exist in Paul's gospel or in the Bible, but it exists in our culture of Christianity. If someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe He's in me, what they're saying is I'm a repentant sinner. I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to Christ. Remember, it was Paul that said in verse 21, unless when I come again, when my, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented. Right? So to answer, I'm in Christ, is to answer, I'm in the faith, I trust Christ, and I've repented, and I'm a repenting sinner. The very aim of Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God the Father in Acts 5.31 through Peter's pen and his words is what? For to give, for to exalt Jesus to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Israel. A prince is a ruler. So what is the expectation? If Christ is in you and you're in the faith, you come under the ruler and you abandon your way for His way. Prince, repentance. He exalted Him to be at His right hand. He resurrected Him to be a prince to give repentance. Now the second, to be a Savior to give forgiveness. He's not your Savior for which you're forgiven until He's your Prince for which you've repented. And all over Christianity today, repentance is 
a bad word. When we leave out repentance as a church, we have turned to another gospel. Another gospel. And then what's the upshot of that repentance and forgiveness in Acts 5.31? Peter says, and not only are we witnesses to this, as he speaks to the council of the Pharisees, but God also bears witness by giving the Holy Spirit to all those that are obeying Him. How do I know Christ is in me? Faith and repentance that puts me on the pathway of obeying Him. That's what Peter clearly lays out in Acts 5.31. And the expectation that Paul gives for the church, even their perfection, their restoration, that they would be what they ought to be in holiness. That they would be back on the pathway of holiness. My deep assurance in yours, beloved, as a church, that Christ is in us, is that we believe in Christ, we're repenting sinners, and we're obeying Christ. Not in order to be saved, but because He's in us. We're united to Him. And then He becomes the power of obeying. Because He's saved us. He's washed us. We've been sanctified once for all. We have His righteousness connected to us because He's in us, united. Do you pass the test? Do you believe? I believe. Have you repented? Have you repented? Are you obeying? Are you on the pathway of submission to the prince who's God's ruler at His right hand? So Paul says that there's no forgiveness without repentance because there's no forgiveness without faith. And faith and repentance is, as we've said, two sides of the same coin. A turning away from sin is a turning to Jesus Christ. If you turn to Jesus Christ without turning away from sin, what have you done? You've turned to Christ for a paradise and you brought all your sin with you. What does that mean? Does that mean we're not sinners? No, it means you've brought your enjoyment of sin you brought your lifestyle of sin. And what had the church at Corinth brought with another gospel? Sexual immorality and all kinds of vices that they would not repent of. You see the connection? Beloved, God wants you to have assurance that Jesus is in you. But it must be through what the Bible says. I can't make this up to make us feel good with a kind of feel good that is like a doctor saying, Hey, I really want this patient to feel good, so... Just tell them everything's okay. Go on and live your life as you are. What's going to happen? Not good. The most loving thing you can tell a sinner is to repent and believe the gospel. You must turn from your sin and you must turn to Christ. And if we as a church don't do that, you know what we are? We're a docamas. We have failed the test. And any church on the planet, I don't care how powerful, I don't care how big, I don't care how great it is, I don't care how good the worship is. If repentance is left out, we are becoming a dokimos. Second word, behold. Behold Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with open face beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of God. How is this perfection that Paul is after going to take place? How will we be what we ought to be? In holiness and godliness, by beholding the Lamb of God. To behold is to gaze and to look upon Him. 
As in a glass or in a mirror, what happens? We are being changed or transformed from glory to glory, from one degree to the next, or we could say little by little. It's a process. Is Christ in me? Is Christ in this church? Are we beholding the glory of the Lord? You remember Paul's point is the deficiency of the Mosaic age and the law is what? Couldn't transform anybody. There are people still gazing at the law, trying to be transformed by it. You cannot be transformed by a law, a rule, a principle, or a command. You can only be transformed by looking at Jesus Christ. This church had stopped gazing upon Christ and were gazing through a triumphalist lens, another gospel that led them back into sin. Paul is calling them to test themselves. Are you beholding Jesus Christ? Are you looking at Him through the Word? And are you being enlightened and transformed just a little by a little? See, Transformation doesn't take place in a day. It's, it's through the process of your whole life, which Paul speaks of when he says glory to glory. And who does this? The Spirit of God. And where is the Spirit of God? In you. It's the Spirit of Christ in you that dwells in you. How do I know I'm in Christ? I trust Him. I've, I've repented. I want to repent. I am repenting. I'm seeking to obey Christ. And that all happens by beholding Christ, not the law. Paul is not after self-improvement, self-help, self-anything. He wants the church to gaze and behold the Lamb that was slain for them. Beholding. And then lastly, belonging. And this is the one I want to spend a little more time on, belonging. Where is that in the text? Well, none of the B words are there, but in the faith, believing. For believing, we're seeing something because faith is knowing and seeing the the glory of Christ. But the expression Christ in you speaks of belonging. To belong is simply in the English is a definition that means a close or intimate relationship. I ask you, how much closer can a relationship be? Not that someone's beside you 24-7. Not that they're with you 24-7, but they're inside of you 24-7. It can't get any closer. It can't get any more intimate than that. But the problem is, if you don't know this belonging then Christ is in you with no relationship whatsoever. You need to know deeply that you belong to Jesus Christ and that He is in you. It becomes the power of what Paul is calling perfection. Again, he uses that word in verse 9, and then he calls on the church in verse 11, be perfect, kind of as a salutation to the whole letter. Be what you ought to be. How are you going to be where you ought to be, church? Christ in you. You belong to Him. And it becomes the power of holiness. Look back at chapter 7. Look at this again. Chapter 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness... In the fear of God. So when Paul is praying for their perfection, he says, be perfect, be what you ought to be. We know he's praying that they would be completing holiness. 
Now, how do you complete holiness? You cleanse yourself. Cleansing ourselves. Now, we must remember this cleansing can only be done for those that are already clean or cleansed. If we don't understand that, you're going to be in despair. Jesus said in John 15, Now you are already clean through the word have I spoken to you. So the Father is going to purge the branches, but what you need to know is He's purging the purged. He's cleansing the cleansed. So the purging of the branches is not cleaning you. Not like that, but it is cleansing. What was the word that Jesus gave in the Gospel of John? The word of His deity. The word of His sonship. The word that they had believed by faith and attached themselves to Christ, whereby they were clean once and for all. He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but ye are clean, totally, fully bathed through the word that Jesus spoke about his divinity and his deity. You believe that? You're clean. So the cleansing that we do in perfecting holiness is not cleansing us. Not like that. We are clean totally, every whit, every way, which gives us the peace now to cleanse and to perfect holiness. It's not determining where you'll end up. It's because you're in Christ. Now, how do you cleanse yourselves in chapter 7, verse 1? Well, you have these promises. What are the promises? Well, he ends in chapter 6 with the promises. And what's so interesting is they really don't look like promises. What are they? Verse 16, chapter 6. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, Brother Stephen read about five or six of those promises, and that doesn't even begin to open the door to the number of times God has made reference to the new covenant, which is this one thing. You will belong to me. Having these promises of belonging, what does that empower you to do? Cleanse and perfect holiness. Notice he says in verse 17 of chapter 6, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I'll be a father unto you, and you should be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What's that? We use that word all the time, belonging. We say about marriage, well, she belongs to me and I belong to her. We say about our children, they belong to me. We say about our parents, I belong to them. We even say in a loose sense at work, well, I belong there. Secular research has demonstrated in a a secular way, non-Christian way, that the people who have the deepest fulfillment are those who have a place of belonging. They belong. This belonging has been demonstrated to be an acceptance in an unconditional love and a belonging to a place or a group. That sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? When we are secure in knowing that Christ is in us and that we belong to Him unconditionally, unconditional love, because you don't want a conditional love. You don't want a love conditioned on anything with God or you're going to fail. An unconditional love in belonging to Christ 
that brings a deep fulfillment and a satisfaction that works itself out, then how? Belonging to one another. We will never belong to one another in a gospel church way as covenant members of the church until we understand our belonging to Christ and His unconditional love. We will be loosely attached. Why? Because I belong somewhere else, friend. I don't belong here. I get my attachment, my belonging from some other fulfillment than belonging to Christ. And therefore what? I don't belong to you. We will be a dokimos, rejected. We will not be a church until we understand we belong to Christ. I want you to see how this is the power that Paul will speak about for this cleansing or for this being what we ought to be. He uses the word perfection in the last chapter and also chapter 7. Listen to two places. Galatians 5.24 And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. How do you crucify an affection and a lust? The flesh is the gratification of the flesh. You belong to Jesus. They that are, they that belong to Christ, have and are crucifying the flesh. What happens if you don't belong to Christ? What happens if you don't have a sense of that belonging? You're not crucifying the affections and lusts because you're not enjoying His unconditional love by belonging to Him, by Him being in you through relationship. But what does that mean to belong to Christ in that context? It means Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives where? In me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. How? Unconditionally. And He gave Himself for me. Why? To have me so that I would belong to Him, church. Now what? They that are Christ, they that belong to Christ, they that have Christ in them, they have the power to crucify the affection and lust. Right? If we don't live in the reality of the Son of God living in us, He belongs to us, we belong to Him, what happens? The flesh crucifies us. And there's no perfecting of holiness in the fear of God. Look at Romans chapter 8. It's all about union with Christ. He would say in verse 9, But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. What does that mean? You don't belong to it. If the Spirit of God is in you, you're not in the flesh. And if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And of course, the reverse of that is when he's in you, there's belonging. Now what's the power of this belonging? Skip to verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you will die. And he means forever. He doesn't mean temporally, because he's already established the meaning of flesh means the Spirit's not there, you don't belong to Christ. So death is eternal if you live in the flesh. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, there's the cleansing, there's the crucifying, you live forever. The crucifying doesn't earn the living forever. It's the outflow of what? Christ in you. You belong to Him. Now, why is that so? Paul's going to tell us two reasons. Why is it that if you through the Spirit kill the deeds of the flesh, you live forever? Two reasons. First one, verse 14. Because as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are what? The sons of God. They're in the family. 
Is that not belonging? He's leading you not to be in love with sin. Not to believe and say, God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to identify this way and live in this sin. That's not the Spirit at all. He's leading you to kill sin because Jesus is in you. Now here's the second reason I want to get to, verse 15. Because you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, you've received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Bondage is slavery. Paul is saying, Christ is in you, so you haven't received the the spirit of slavery leading you to fear again. What is the greatest fear of a slave? He knows he doesn't belong in the house. He knows it. And he knows the master. His relationship is master. And he works, he works, he works. And anytime the master can sell him down the street, he can get rid of him. He knows he doesn't belong in the house. He has no belonging. And he's scared to death. But a son and a daughter? What is the spirit of adoption? Now, rest assured, you don't belong in the house. But you are. Because you've been adopted in the family of God so that you would know you belong to Christ. Amen. You see, the very power of killing the deeds of your flesh is not belonging to some group, not to belong to some friends, not to attach yourself to something else, but to know that Christ is in you and you have the spirit of adoption whereby you experience the unconditional love of God. You belong as a believer. Jesus said, He that committeth sin is a servant of sin. And the servant does not abide in the house forever. He's a slave. He doesn't belong there. But the Son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son is in you, you're no longer a slave, beloved. You're a a son of the Most High God. That's what the prodigal experienced, isn't it? Came back, he said, Father, just make me a slave. Just make me a hired slave. What does the father say? You don't understand. None of my slaves live in the house, and they never will. Who brought the fatted calf and the ring and the robe? It was the slaves. They don't live in the house. What's going to be the power of perfection in that young man's life? What's going to be the power of restoration? What's going to be the power of being what he ought to be when he comes back into the house and he knows he belongs to the Father? He belongs there. Because there was a a lamb that was slain on his behalf. Beloved, it's so critical that we understand and are assured that Christ is in us and we belong to God because if you don't, You're going to try to find your sense of belonging to a substance, a person. Where do I belong? Who do I belong to? Your identity, your belonging, your attachment, and it's going to leave you empty. Empty. Is that what you want? Emptiness? Isn't that what you've experienced is emptiness? But in Christ, the spirit of adoption, God says, I'm your father, you're my son, you belong to me. 
and the reason I wanted you to belong to me. And so, we need to experience that. We belong to Jesus Christ, and the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that what we are the children of God. He is aiming to make you know you belong to Him. Now, what's the upshot again? When we're secure in belonging to Christ, we're being rooted and grounded in His love for us, not your love for Him. You don't want to ever go in that direction. His unconditional love for us, He's welcomed us into the family solely by His unconditional love. Now what? That sense of belonging is the cause of belonging to one another. You just mark that down. If you're detached and loose from the church, it's because your belonging is not in Christ what it should have been. You're getting your belonging, mark it down, somewhere else. Your attachment, your identity, who you are, what you belong to, is anywhere but Christ. And guess what? You just come here for a Sunday sermon. We give ourselves to one another in belonging in covenant community. And we're from the head, fitly joined together and compacted rather than depacted. When we experience His love, He's in us. Relationship, we belong to Him. We will be a docimos as long as we don't understand we belong to Jesus. And we pursue that union, that intimacy, that relationship, which is a relationship of joy. And all the broken wells that we've tried and are trying to find it. Jesus says, I'm in you as a a well gushing up. What what, what imagery is He trying to convey there? A well of satisfaction. He's right there with you 24-7. I in them and thou in me. John 17, that the world may know. How are we going to know that Christ, how are they going to know Christ is we belong to one another and we love? That's perfecting holiness. Are you passing the test? Do you believe? You've repented and you want to repent. Are you beholding the glory of God in the Bible, in the Word? Are you seeking Him? And are you having a deep sense of belonging to Christ. Those who don't belong now belong because He has brought us into the family. He's predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto Himself. Because where is the Son bringing us? Into the Father's house. Into the Father's presence. Into the Father's love. Into the Father's joy. Into the Father's satisfaction then we will belong to one another. Only then will we be able to belong to one another in a real gospel church way. And then lastly, and I'm out of time, so we'll just mention it. The perfection, which we've mentioned several times. Paul says in verse 7, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Paul's sincere prayer is that they would turn from the wrong they're doing. And he's not praying that so that he should appear approved. Right? If Paul was concerned about what he looked like to the church, then his prayer would be motivated by whether he looks like he's approved or not. But no, he's praying that they should do that which is honest, though they be, he be as a reprobate. Now how would he appear as a reprobate unapproved? 
Paul already told them he was coming to Corinth and he didn't come. And they criticized him. He's fickle. He's unstable. What happens if he said, I'm coming a third time, I'm not going to spare. And he gets there and says, oh, I changed my mind. Why did you change your mind? Because they repented. So Paul genuinely prays for their restoration and what they should be, even if it looks like, again, he's a fickle man, he's unstable, he's just changing his mind. He says, that's okay. Why, Paul? For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Paul's power as an apostle was for the truth, not against it. And so he would not use his apostolic authority in a way that would undermine or be opposed to the truth. And then he says, for we are glad and we are weak and you're strong. And this is what we wish or pray. This is what he's after. Your perfection. That we be what we ought to be. Now the word for honest is kalos, which means beautiful, excellent. Peter uses it a couple of times. He uses it in Peter 2.12 where he says, having your conversation beautiful, honest among the Gentiles. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, give glory to God in the day of visitation. An English word we could use to express coloss would be resplendent, attractive, brilliantly shining. What is the resplendence of the church? It's her holiness. It's your lifestyle is honest, Peter would say. When he uses that word conversation again, he says, be holy in all matter of conversation. Having your conversation honest. So the beauty of your behavior that they behold is your holiness, which reflects a resplendent glory on God and not us. Honest. Are you honest? Do you attract attention to the Savior? Do you belong to Jesus? That's what Paul is after. Now, how is Paul going to tell the church to get there? And this is where we end. He says, now I pray. If you would ask me to pinpoint what would be the most approved characteristic of the church to God, it would have to be prayer. Because nothing happens without it. The word perfect in verse 11 is a passive imperative. It's a divine passive, but it's a command. Now we pointed this out before. Go obey a passive uh, 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 verb. How do you obey when you sit there? You pray. You're asking someone else to make it real in your life. Beloved, this is the crux of Christianity. This is what it means for Jesus to be in you. Hey, if you can go do it, go get it done. You don't need Jesus. You don't need a Savior. You don't need a gospel. Just go be moral. Go be holy. Go get the job done. You cannot. You cannot. Exclamation point. So Paul says, now I'm going to pray that you do no evil. Why are you praying? Just tell them. Say, stop it. Don't do it. Don't say that. Don't be that. Be what you're supposed to be, like parents do. Because that's not how it works. Now I pray, and I'm praying for your perfection. Beloved, a, a praying church is an approved church. 
Because how do we tap into grace without prayer? How, how, how are we any of this without prayer? We're not. We're just, a, we're just clay pots walking around empty of any treasure, just bumping each other along the way. There is no power without prayer. So Paul ends in prayer. What's he praying? For the presence of God in verse 14, the Trinitarian God. Grace, love, unconditional, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in you, the Trinity with you, the Trinity empowering you by prayer. We must be a praying church, always taking the test of prayer. Are we praying? Not to say, well, we ever, we've prayed enough. No, we just keep going. We keep praying. Listen to Augustine's quote here, more in its entirety, in his confessions. My entire hope is exclusively in your great mercy, speaking to God. Grant what you command and command what you will. I think it was Pelagius that had a real struggle with this. He loves you less who together with you love something which He does not love for your sake. He, the man, loves you, God, less if He loves something which He does not love for your sake. Whatever you love, love it for the sake of God. O love, you ever burn and are never extinguished. That's God's love. O charity, my God, set me on fire. Grant what you command and command what you will. But remember, Lord, that we are but dust. Paul had no power in himself because he was of the same dust as we. But he said these words, Philippians 4, 11 through 12, under the breath of your inspiration, and I loved him for it. Strengthen me that I may have this power. Grant what you command and command what you will. It is by your gift that your command is kept. Now, if that's not true, Paul is off the mark praying that they would be honest, praying for their perfection, or he's just using pious words that don't matter, as my mother used to say, to a hill of beans. Paul, you're just being showy. No, he really means. If this is going to happen, God commands it be perfect, it's passive voice, because prayer is the means that God is going to work through to accomplish it. So, beloved, are we passing the test? Being in Christ, is God pleased with us as a church? Are we a praying church, individually, collectively? Do we seek the God, uh, God through prayer? Do we know that without God, without Christ, none of this is possible, but, but Christ is in us, that we can have what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost being with us all. And Paul ends the letter with, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that you inspired. And we've learned many things that we had not considered before. Many things about Paul and his ministry and his suffering that is told to us no other place like it is in this letter. We thank you for it, Lord. And now we want to go back and just read it all over again. Enlighten us further as we continue to read over and over in passages of Scripture. Show us what many things we missed and deepen our knowledge and understanding as we trust in Jesus Christ, as we behold and want to behold your glory through the Word, through Paul's ministry of the Word and the apostles and prophets. And Lord, as we want 
to understand that we belong to you as marvelous, as amazing, and sometimes as unbelievable as that is. We believe through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe through the unconditional love of God. And we believe through the communion of the Holy Spirit in us that we truly belong to you. And if anybody doesn't have that sense because they haven't believed and repented and felt the deep assurance of Jesus Christ and belonging to Him. May they take up their cross today and follow you in gospel baptism and church membership. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.